So, so I have not been able to find the exact quote. I don't know if it's because it's in court proceedings or whatnot, mm -hmm. but apparently I was referenced in the news by the CEO of Simon & Schuster. This was brought up during one of my recent live streams. So if you aren't familiar, there is a merger going on where Penguin Random House is basically acquiring Simon & Schuster. Yeah. There used to be six publishers, then there became five, and now there's discussions of there being four with Simon & Schuster joining the Penguin Random House family. Mm -hmm. So I think the Random Penguin is now named Simon. <laughs> okay. If they go together, you know, we always joke, they, they deliberately called it Penguin Random House so that people couldn't call it Random Penguin. Yeah. I reject this attempt by corporate <laughs> branding. And now I think if that all comes together, they need to be Simon the Random Simon Penguin. Simon the Random Penguin. Yes. Okay. But I love this. Regardless, there is a proceeding going on. I don't know if it's a full court case or what it is, but it's basically there's investigations by the Department of Justice to determine if this would violate antitrust prohibitions. And if you are not an author or you don't work yeah. in publishing, you might not even know that this is yeah. happening. Mm -hmm. If you work in publishing, you might be hanging on every word. It's been a very interesting up and down, back and forth. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King testified. Yep. All kinds of stuff is going he on. He testified against the merger. Yes. Saying this would be bad for authors to have fewer places to send things. I am not up to date on it enough to really weigh in on if this specific merger itself yeah. violates antitrust. I think it's kind of scary because mm -hmm. the fewer places you have to sell books, the worse it is for authors. Yeah. My very kind of back of the envelope mm -hmm. layman's interpretation of this is that I don't know if in the short term readers would even notice. Yeah. Whereas it has the potential to be bad for authors. Right, but that's the same in any other yeah, of these. Of, of any merger whatsoever. And whether or not it's actually violating antitrust, that's what I can say. Yes, it'll probably mm -hmm. be worse for authors, but so was probably Penguin buying Random House. Yeah. And that one was okay. And we understand that the business has to shift and change and things will happen that are bad for authors. And All the time anyway. That's just how yeah. it goes. And so I can't weigh in that, but yeah. he yes. apparently in his testimony- Maybe it was his testimony. Maybe it was, I think it was in his testimony because I can find all these records of people talking about him having said it. Mm -hmm. I can't find the actual quote. The actual thing. Said, self-publishing is a bigger threat. And he pointed at me and saying, Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter this year is proof that there are enough threats to publishing that this merger is not a bad thing. That's what yeah. he's arguing for, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. We need to merger so that we can present a unified face against these threats against, like Brandon Sanders. Against the vicious self-publishers. Yes. And to be clear, when you say a bigger threat, mm -hmm. a bigger threat than we realize. That's what he said. It's yeah. not a bigger threat than this consolidation would be. No, but yeah. he uses me as an example of the threats. Mm -hmm. And yeah. honestly, I can't blame him, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like, I think he's missing the point. Like, self-publishing is a threat to traditional publishing. 100%. It absolutely is. He is correct. Mm -hmm. But bringing me up makes me say, ooh, I now am part of this conversation. We, we now get to do uh, a Brandon Reacts video. Brandon Reacts to being uh, brought <laughs> up in these proceedings and things like that, which, yeah. is, which is interesting and cool and a little... And a little... Yeah, a little... Welcome a little. to celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, self-publishing and, you know, 20 years, 15 years ago when we were breaking in, the idea yeah. that self-publishing might be a threat to traditional publishing was laughable. Wasn't laughable. I don't think by the time we were breaking in, I don't think it was, because we had seen Napster by that point. 
That's true. In the 90s. And so people were, yeah. We knew it would have been laughable to people. But by mm -hmm. our generation, at least I saw the music industry heavily disrupted mm -hmm. yeah. by, but the idea that it would become self-publishing rather than, you know, ebook. Like I, yeah. I don't think any of us really grokked that it would turn into indie publishing, but of course yeah. it would. And yeah. it did. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that traditional publishing will die. Mm -hmm. But I think self-publishing and indie publishing is inarguably disruptive yes. to the status quo yes. that has been around forever. So he's not wrong in general. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that he's wrong in some very important ways. Mm -hmm. Let me say this. If an author doing what I've done is such a threat, the answer should be, how do we replicate this? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like if you're the CEO of a major publishing company and you hear about my Kickstarter and your response is, holy crap, this is a threat. What if all of our authors go do this? Yeah. You are missing the point. You're missing the point. Yes. If you're able to look at your Kickstarter and not turn the vast resources of a yes. big five publisher toward beating Brandon at his own game, yes. then you are bad at your job. And I think that publishing, I don't want to say they're all bad at their jobs, right? I don't even want to say he is. I don't mm -hmm. know him. I don't know the choices he's made and things like that. Granted. But I think that publishing in general is very backward, yeah. living in the 1800s. And you know they're not just one generation behind. They're several generations behind. I mm -hmm. think that they don't give the resources to people in publishing who are smart, who could change this. I think they're just so conservative with how the industry changes. They're pulled, kicking and screaming mm -hmm. forward rather than innovating and trying to actually do things. And yeah. if you're the CEO, I think that you can see me and be like, wow, there's something about that that's scary. But I really think your response should be, wow, the biggest Kickstarter of all time is not a smartwatch anymore. It's not some tech company. Mm -hmm. It's books. People still want books. Yeah. These can go as big as anything. How do we do this? How did Brandon do it? We should be able to do things yeah. like this. Mm -hmm. And this rather than being excited, being scared is the problem. Yes. Being able to look at that and say, the thing that everyone is spending all this money on is the thing that I sell. Yes. Let's jump on this. Yes. Okay. So with this spicy opening to yes. whet your appetites. Let's pause. Pause? For a food heist. Food heist, yes. This is another gonna... one that has yeah. been very recently in the news. It is not technically a heist in the way that I like to define them as people infiltrating a thing, you know, mm. dodging like laser security. But it is in laser the millions security. of dollars, which is what make. Well, I mean, nobody's guarding their, their, their shrimp with laser security. Oh, is this one shrimp? This one is seafood. Seafood. Mm. Yeah, so there were three dudes uh -huh. in Florida who stole $1.3 million worth of seafood. Wow. And it was not like infiltrate the compound heist mm -hmm. the way some of these others have been, but it was a months-long fraud. Okay. So food fraud, but basically three guys, 33, 36, and 40 years old, which first of all, they're younger than me, mm -hmm. and I haven't stolen any seafood let alone $1.3 million worth of seafood. It's really making me feel like I might have wasted you know, we my could, potential. We could let you, we could turn the other direction. You could run off with a Coke. <laughs> Just take off with one. An extra Coke, right? When you count yeah. them after I yeah. leave, like Dan took two tonight? Yeah. Yeah, we will reduce his gruel portions. <laughs>
Yes. All the money you're being paid for being on the podcast, which is so far zero. So far nothing. I get paid in Coke. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, over the course of June and July, they made several kind of fraudulent purchases of seafood in the tens of thousands range, which ultimately yeah. added up to 1.3 million. They have been caught and there's an ongoing investigation. But anytime people steal food, yep. it gets my attention. So where does these guys and the brisket guy fall in our hierarchy when you're in prison? We talked about this once. Okay. And the special food heist prison. The special food heist prison where we have a pecking order mm-hmm. of who gets to be the big boss in the prison and who has to like go get everyone else's food or whatever. Yeah. Where do these fall? Is this Okay, so when yeah. someone has to go get food in the food heist prison, yeah. they can't just be a cafeteria, right? Right, right. Like, you gotta steal they it. Put from it the, behind a fence. From the laser dogs. And if you're yeah. good at your job, then yeah. you get to eat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because one point three million that's a lot. Yes, that's uh, that's that is, But this is white collar food heisting, which <laughs> I don't know what I think of white collar food heisting. Yeah, well, and mm-hmm. food it, it's food defrauding. Yeah, right. They mm-hmm. basically pretended to be a supermarket, made yep. a bunch of purchases, whereas the guy who jumped a fence and cut through a chain yeah, yeah. and may or may not have fed orphans. I mean, for all we know, someone made like brisket and shrimp surf and turf to feed a bunch of orphans. Yeah. In you know now, these guys the Gulf states orphans. between Texas no, no, and Florida. No. no, no, brisket dude was the, you he know, was feeding he orphans. He was feeding orphans. He was feeding very, very hungry orphans that you mm-hmm. know that had a medical condition requiring them to have a certain amount of protein every day, and it had to come from delicious barbecue. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah. it's not going to work. Yep. The guy who infiltrated a compound in mm-hmm. order to steal his food feels like more authentic of a heist. Okay, okay. But at the same time, to steal $1.3 million worth of anything Mm -hmm. is impressive. But food specifically, because that's five full, like, truckload shipments Mm -hmm. of seafood, they must have had some method Mm -hmm. of dealing with that, right? Like, did they take it around to stores or restaurants? Did they have their own restaurant? Like, it speaks to an impressive level of coordination and planning just to be able to unload that shrimp, unless it's just three guys like having a really great shrimp boil in their backyard. Bring your friends. <laughs> we will have plenty. We, we may have uh, bit off more than we could chew here. Hmm. Great metaphor. Ha ha. Anyway, there's your food heist. Now, back to books. So, back to books. So, we kind of talked about the corporate side. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this a little more if you want. I mean, could corporate do what I did? I guess is part of, you know, they part of this question, this question. But here's a part that we leave out. Um, we talked about indie publishing. The only problem I have with indie publishing is that indie publishing right now just means Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so indie publishing is not as pure as I would want it to be, because we have one player in this industry and it's Amazon. As mm-hmm. I've said many times, my agent likes to joke that there is one customer in all of publishing, and it is Amazon. Amazon determines what gets sold. They determine what you get to read. They mm-hmm. determine what you are sold. It doesn't matter if you're indie. It doesn't matter if you're the big four. It doesn't matter if you're the mid-sized press. Basically, if you are making a living at writing or even you know moderate money, then Amazon is your employer yeah. in a lot of ways. They mm-hmm. are the filter through which you have to sell. Yeah, even you know Barnes & Noble. Yeah. 
which used to be a big mm-hmm. dog. Barnes and Noble yep. would have cover approval on stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe they still do in some cases, but ultimately it's Amazon. Yeah, and I love Barnes and Noble, and we shouldn't cut them out. They're the ones fighting. They're like the only fighter the, the left only in the ring. Significant yes. opposition they to Amazon the, the as own, a book yeah. outlet, and this is why I still support them quite a bit. And I should also mention that I don't dislike Amazon as a user experience. They have great user experience. I wish they treated some of their employees better, but it could be anyone in that spot. And of all the people in that spot, I don't think Amazon has done too many awful things with their power. They've done some. They've done some fairly awful things. Fairly awful things, but I don't think it is more than another corporation in their spot would do. How about that? Okay. I think almost any corporation in their spot would be doing these kind of awful things. And that's the reason why it's bad. Which which is why it's a problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. I do want to give a shout out incidental Mm -hmm. to this conversation that the pandemic in the last two and a half years have actually seen a really impressive boom of indie bookstores. Yes. Which is great. And indie bookstores are great. But if we're looking at the raw percentages, absolutely, even Barnes & Noble is not making a meaningful dent in, in what Amazon Amazon's power, right? Mm-hmm. And this is partially because of the rise of audiobooks that Barnes Noble just doesn't really sell, mm-hmm. and the rise of ebooks, which they sell, but only yeah. kind of. And so indie but, but publishing- Pertinent to your yeah. point, mm-hmm. indie publishing is basically Amazon. Yes. But so is traditional publishing at this yes, point. Yes, that's what right? I'm saying, right? And so what I did is I said, is there a way I can sell books that are not Amazon? Mm-hmm. Right. Like my attempt was less to leave. And I've talked this before. I'm sorry if you guys heard this less to leave traditional publishing, which I haven't done Mm -hmm. and more to find myself a life raft that in case some things with Amazon go poorly, if Amazon decides they hate me for whatever reason, maybe there's people from Amazon watching this and being like, you know, why haven't we turned off Brandon Sanderson's books yet? He went and sold somewhere else. What if they decide that, like, for my company's health, needed to find another method and build this up and have another way to Mm -hmm. sell books? Yeah. And that's where the Kickstarter came from. And we have talked about this at length in Mm -hmm. a Kickstarter episode of this show. Yeah. So this is necessary context for the rest of our conversation. But if you want to hear more about that aspect specifically, go watch that. So at the end of the day, my response to the CEO is, you need to be doing this. You need to find a way outside of Amazon's thumb. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find my own ways because you refuse to. Yeah. I'm not the threat. The fact that there's a monopoly on who sells your books is a threat. Yeah. They're a monopsony. Yeah. And a monopsony. Yeah. I do think that it might be much harder for mm-hmm. a publishing company to get out from under that thumb than it is for you. Yes. Because as soon as they start trying, they run the risk of pissing off the they big do. elephant they who do. controls everything. But as I've said before, Amazon in the book industry is Netflix in 2015. Mm-hmm. They have all the content because no one else has a platform or a way to sell the content. So they give it all to Netflix. And the question is, when will this be on Netflix? And then Netflix realized, you know, this is early mm-hmm. 2000s, they presaged this. They said, wait a minute. We don't own our content. They can be taken away from us at any point. Yeah. And Amazon doesn't own our content. It mm-hmm. does have its own authors. Yeah. And it does have indie publishing, but it doesn't own this. 
this is content the publishers are providing mm -hmm. and they are being strong-armed by this because there's only one player and you know my argument to them is why does the publishing houses not have a competitor to audible why is there no hulu yeah. for audiobooks mm -hmm. that's just a simple example of you know you are feeding all this content to amazon and you are allowing amazon to be the only game in town audiobooks.com and itunes and things like this just do not make a significant dent and maybe the publishers are all like if audiobooks.com and this can't do it then we can't and maybe yeah. that's what the real money says and i could respect that but the fact that we are disney mcmillan is disney and amazon is netflix makes me say there should be some way that just like everyone decided some... to get out from underneath netflix's thumb and you know we see how that's going yeah anyway and a lot of these other streamers are starting to crush Netflix yes, in a lot of ways. They are. And you're right. Publishing has not. And this goes back to what you were talking about, the kind of, you know, 19th century mm -hmm. attitudes. And there's these kind of very hidebound traditions of this is what it means to be a publishing company. Yeah. This is what we have always done. That's what we will continue well, to do. Well, and also they got smacked down by the DOJ for the antitrust lawsuit where they colluded to do price fixing, which they mm -hmm. did do, right? Yeah. They were trying hard to get out from Amazon's thumb and in so doing, actually broke the law and then had to be slapped down for it. But, which has made them gun shy, Which I has think. made them gun shy and they need to be careful about not breaking the law. And I can anticipate that some of the listeners are like, Brandon, I don't want there to be any other place than Audible. I like Audible. That's fine, but... Having one store selling things is bad in the long run for all of us. Mm -hmm. It just really is. And I don't know the solution to get there. But for instance, I have a lot of friends at Epic Games. And Epic Games' solution to break the Steam, which I love Steam, right? Everybody loves Steam. They, again, yeah. like Amazon, have created the best user experience mm -hmm. and have succeeded through innovation. Yeah. They deserve their success. Both of them do, at least on a pure business standpoint. The yeah. morals. They have provided a service yeah. and a product that people need and want in a mm -hmm. way that works really well for everyone. That aspect is laudable. Yes. yes. But they are the only game in town, pun intended. And, well, and when I'm at the point where when something else crops up and yeah. I'm like, oh, in order to play this, you actually have to go through yeah. you play mm -hmm. or something like that. And I say, yeah. oh, I'll just put it on Steam. Yeah, yeah. And that's really annoying, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I look at Epic and I say, I, I really want this to succeed because I want there to be two Steams. Mm -hmm. The perfect world is there being like four Steams that all are running sales, just like we have. You can go buy the game in physical form from Walmart, or you can go buy it from here, you can go buy it from there, and you mm -hmm. can shop for the best price or the best experience or what you want to have and things like that. And we want that in digital forms, but we don't have it because one very smart group captured 90% of the market before anyone else could figure out how to compete. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm glad that we're talking about audiobooks specifically yeah. because when it comes to physical books, mm -hmm. it would be essentially impossible for any publisher to come up with the shipping infrastructure to compete with something like Amazon. I don't think impossible, but it would be very difficult. And, you know, I don't know that I could put that upon them, right? Yeah. Maybe they could do it, but that's when you run into, like, there's problems with all of this. Traditionally, the reason this doesn't exist 
is because there were actually antitrust concerns if mm-hmm. someone produces the thing and then sells it and in their own also store. also sells it. I mean, we're seeing this with Tesla and cars, mm-hmm. where a lot of states have laws against you selling your own cars that your company makes. You have to use you know, yeah. a local business person. Now, I've looked at that and said, uh, this doesn't seem to be accomplishing what we want because everyone thinks that any car sales is just a miserable experience. No one provides a good user experience mm-hmm. with that. And obviously that market has problems yeah. and is not a good model. And so maybe letting them sell their own is a good idea, right? But that's yeah. what Tesla wants to do. And- but traditionally why there aren't bookstores are like the McMillan bookstore is because that would have antitrust problems mm-hmm. where the way that the US market works, they want one person to produce the stuff and another person to sell it. Yeah, which... The digital age is already destroying. Yes, the digital right? age is completely destroyed. Every yeah. streaming service is now also a content producer yes. in addition to a content provider. Mm-hmm. Amazon does have 47 North and yep. its very own people. Several of my books are published by Audible, not yeah. just distributed through them. A couple of mine are too. And so, yeah, they are making and selling the product yep. in a way that traditional publishers have never really been allowed to do, which is already kind of weird and unfair. And there's probably legal justifications for that that I don't understand. But all I know is this year I sold 300,000 audiobooks, not through Audible, which is pretty incredible. And maybe that's less a threat to traditional publishing than traditional publishing thinks. Yeah. Exactly. Do we want to get to part two of this discussion? Let's go to part two. Okay. Because part two is compelling to me. Mm -hmm. There was a Slate article back during the Kickstarter Kickstarter Mm -hmm. that it was not a hit piece on you. It was just kind of an aggregation of here are a lot of opinions. That's a very Slate thing to do, right? Like here's Mm -hmm. what other people are saying. Yep. One of them. And this is and the a point of the whole article was this is what people are saying. Yeah, this is this is what people are saying. Mm-hmm. One of those opinions that came yeah. out in this article and that I have seen repeated in a mm-hmm. couple other places, though, to be fair, not very often, is Brandon's wild success with this Kickstarter is going to hurt other authors by reducing the amount of money in the market, the amount of readers with available mm-hmm. cash, and ultimately the diversity of the publishing industry which is a very frustrating opinion to me. Okay. It's a frustrating (laughs) opinion to me, but I don't know that I have the answers. Like on one hand, I very much like, if if we take the diversity thing, I'm like, I'm glad that publishing as a whole is pushing toward more diverse voices. And I think Mm -hmm. legitimately that more diversity in story types and archetypes and people writing them is going to be good for the long-term benefit of the whole. 100%. People read fiction to be taken to new worlds and places. Like this is what happened in the late 90s, in my opinion. What Mm -hmm. Epic fantasy hit a slump about right after Game of Thrones until about 2004. Mm -hmm. It was really big in the like 99 to 2003 period. And this is the sales slump and new author slump. I mean, George still sold and people who were well-known were still selling, but the new authors were failing. And it's because every one of them felt like a carbon copy of things that people had read before. And I think that in this industry, we thrive on people having a new and compelling and interesting experience. They want to go yeah. to a new world. And it being too much of the same for too long is bad for the industry and all of us. Yes. At the Ab- same time, I am a straight white male. Mm-hmm. I cannot change any of those things. 
Yeah. Or at least I am not inclined to, right? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, yeah. My complaint, I guess, my mm-hmm. frustration with this is not that accusation because mm-hmm. I do think that that comes from a place of genuine concern. Mm-hmm. You know, that if all of this money is going to a straight white male, mm-hmm. then does that mean it is not going to all these other voices, these kind of diverse, decolonized other voices? Mm-hmm. And the reason that that is frustrating to me because is when you look at the other mega bestseller mm-hmm. breakout celebrities of the publishing world, they have pretty much across the board improved the market rather than flattened it. Right. You look back at Stephanie Meyer mm-hmm. and before her, J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. You know, they are both multi-billionaires at this point. Uh, no? I think J.K. Rowling gave enough money to charity that she dropped out of the billionaire okay. club. Out of, I remember out of billionaire reading and back down. But so. regardless, mm-hmm. that is a lot more than $42 million on Kickstarter. Yes. And the result of that was the creation of a whole new generation of readers. I think that there's been ample evidence in the last 25 years that lots of people who maybe wouldn't have become readers have, that it's a bigger chunk of the audience now. The rising tide has lifted all ships as a direct result of both of those writers. I would agree with that. It's not a zero-sum game. It's Mm -hmm. not... Stephanie Meyer got all the money and nobody else did. It was Stephanie Meyer got people really excited about vampires and a bunch of other people were also able to sell their books because Mm -hmm. of that. I agree with that. I'm glad you're making that argument. But with me, it's like I get in this position where I'm like, I don't want to stop writing books. What am Mm -hmm. I supposed to do? Right. Am I supposed to say, please don't buy as many of my books. Mm -hmm. I just don't know what position this sort of rhetoric puts me in. What do you, you know? What do we want from you? Yes. One thing that really Mm -hmm. impressed me, and I was not a part of this, so I can go ahead and Mm -hmm. talk about this as an outsider, is during the middle of that Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. with all of that wild success, you did the let's go fund other Kickstarters thing. Right, because my main goal is to get cool stories to my fans. But picking the Kickstarter was, let's try to see if we can make Kickstarter a more viable option for people because it at least offers Mm -hmm. something that is indie publishing, not through Amazon. And so that's why we went and we backed basically every publishing Kickstarter that was going at the same time. Mm -hmm. We picked our level. funded some of them. Yes, we funded some of them fully. And we picked our level based on how exciting we thought the project was and things like that. We've got a big case of them over there. You can look through. Oh, that's fantastic. They keep coming in. Uh, Brought a lot of visibility to those, Mm -hmm. enabled some titles and some authors that perhaps might not have met their goal without the visibility that you gave them. It really reminded me in some ways of what Rick Riordan has done, which, you know, he answered this same Mm -hmm. question of, I am a straight white male who is very, very successful. What do I do? He's started, you know, bringing in other authors and helping produce their stuff Mm -hmm. and doing a cool job of it. And yours obviously is different than that, but similar in, I'm going to use my success to give back to other people. And, you know, you've got also the, what is it, Lightbringer? Yes. The charity? Yeah, it's Lightweaver. Lightweaver Lightweaver is Brent Weeks, but yeah. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. Brent's a cool dude, so. Yeah, and so taking that opportunity to put visibility on other authors, I think, is an important thing to do. Yeah, 
I appreciate that. I don't know how to respond to a lot of this because it could easily turn into a rah-rah Brandon session, which yeah. as evidenced by the success of the Kickstarter, I don't actually need. Mm-hmm. But it Absolutely. is an interesting sort of thing because this conversation continues to happen. I mostly am just like, I don't know how to respond myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so my response so far has just been, look, this is a thing for you guys to discuss. I have to write my books. I love writing my books. I have to do the best job I can listening to my audience, to the market, and to people, and tell stories that people want to read. That's my job. The market can determine how they deal with that. But I mostly feel like my only response is to stay out of it and just say, look, discuss. I'm not going to be offended by you discussing and asking these questions, but I'm also not going to stop writing books. I'm going to do my thing. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the things that I'm doing are a net positive to the industry and to other authors, but I know that they are a net positive to my fans. And Mm -hmm. so that's who I'm trying to serve. Yeah, absolutely. I do think overall that the success of one author is ultimately a success for all authors and that we do our best to, you know, grow the industry to help bring, you know, as many readers, get readers excited. And, you know, when people buy books, they tend to buy other books. And that is what happened with me when I fell in love with publishing. Well, not publishing, with with reading. (laughs) I don't know if Um, anyone's in love with publishing. Nobody's really in love with publishing. Here's a question for you. Publishing is centered in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. which is like one of the most expensive places yes. to exist. It's super convenient to all of them to have all of the publishers and the resources right where they need them. I've thought before, man, if you know publishing moved just over to New Jersey and all of their rents went down, all of the salaries could go up, mm-hmm. everyone could be more happy, Like, why are we in downtown Manhattan if this industry that is struggling so much that publishing houses are collapsing? And like, maybe it's better to just move (laughs) to a city. We all get together and be like, all right, we're not going to be in Manhattan anymore. We're going to move across the river. I'll go somewhere a little cheaper, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, I mean, you'd have to convince them to do it, but- it's like a prestige thing, right? Like my publisher would periodically buy advertisements for my books in the New York Times. Because of the relationship I have with my publisher, I see all of this and have a weigh-in on it. I'd see the cost and I would be like, what's our ROI on an advertisement in the New York Times? How much of our audience is reading the New York Times? And they'd say, oh, the ROI is terrible. I'm like, okay, why are we buying ads in the New York Times? They're like, well, it's a prestige thing. We need to make sure that all the other publishers in New York know that we are prestigious and yes. part of the industry and part of the business. And so it could be you, it could be someone else, but we need to be buying these ads periodically. And that makes some sense. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, oh, this is so wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. This is the publishing industry yet yeah. again, you know, Like they're all doing this for themselves, not for readers. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with you guys? Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and it goes back to that kind of 19th century thing, or maybe even 18th. Like Mm -hmm. when the publishing industry was established, there were maybe three or four cities in the US they could have chosen. Today, there's 
dozens mm -hmm. from which they could profitably and successfully run their entire industry. Yep. They just haven't moved because that's where they started. And the momentum of history has kept them doing the same thing in the same way in the same place. Yep. So we've got a few minutes left. Mm -hmm. We're kind of done on this topic. We have, yeah. we have beaten it into the ground. We don't want to yeah. poison this well any further than yep. we already have. So I thought maybe I would share one of my most ridiculous publishing, publishing stories, stories and very see good. if you have one too. Have I told this on the podcast about my very first book tour? Maybe. Let's see. If I have, we will cut this segment. So okay. if you're seeing it, then we if haven't talked about this it, yet. This is the first time you're seeing it. So this speaks to how fun it is that publishing is in New York. Mm -hmm. I had my first book come out of Lantris, and I assumed I would get a book tour. This was back in the era where they kind of pretended they would still give everyone a book tour. Yeah. And so I called up tour and I said, do I have get a book tour? The book's out. What do we do? And they're like, oh, it was a brand new publicist. Because if you're the new author, you, you get, get the, the brand new, new publicist. publicist. And the brand new publicist is like, yeah, um, I can set up some signings for you. Let me get back to you. And so I don't remember her name. This was the only thing that she arranged for me. But she called me back like a week later and said, I've got your book tour. I'm like, great. And she said, okay, your first signing is Borderlands Books in San Francisco. That's close to Utah, right? Because she's from <laughs> New York. Like an absolute yeah. Manhattanite. Yeah. To those who don't know, like people who live in Manhattan, not all of them. This is a stereotype, but there mm -hmm. is this sense that the United States is like this vague nothing. And then there's LA and maybe yeah. Chicago, right? It's mm -hmm. like they know where LA is. Yeah. And, but well, and having lived in Europe, I can say it's not just New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everyone who doesn't live in the Western right. states yeah. thinks that about the Western right. states. And so I'm like, so when's the flight? She's like, oh, we don't have the budget for a flight. I booked one close to you so you could drive. That's like a 14-hour drive. Yeah. Are you going to pay for a hotel? She's like, we don't have the budget for a hotel. You asked me to set up uh, a signing for you. I actually got you two. Um, your second one's in Fresno. Oh, which is not even on the way. Which was <laughs> a week later. <laughs> because she thought Fresno was close to Utah also. And yeah. so she had already booked them. She had no money for a hotel. She booked them on separate Fridays. I had to drive wow. to San Francisco, do a book signing. I didn't have any money. You know, I'd made $5,000 on my writing that year and I needed <laughs> to live on. I drove back to Utah. I didn't even stay. Like that I, night. I think I drove back oh that night. Oh my gosh. And then the next week I did it again. I drove to Fresno, did a signing for 20 minutes and drove home. Because a publicist right. forgot about Nevada. Forgot about Nevada. Yeah. And <laughs> this is great. just this is just hilarious. My signing at Borderlands was much better because they, mm -hmm. you know, indie bookstore has a new author. They get an audience there. The one in Fresno was out of borders. And so it was a person, maybe. Like nobody. It was just you show up. They're like, Oh yeah, is your audience here? I'm like, I don't have an audience. I'm a brand new writer. Did you do it? No? Okay. So I stood by the door and hand sold books and then drove home. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the gumption that it takes to be a success in this industry, yeah, young man. Yeah. And to this day, that is the silliest thing that's happened to me. <laughs> that's why the next year when Mistborn came out, I called and said, can I set up a book tour myself? 
Mm-hmm. And will you give me a budget? And they said, we can spare like a thousand bucks, which to them is like, he won't be able to go on book tour because it costs back then. It was already at like something like $1,500 a day to send an author on tour. Well, because yeah. they do it in the most expensive they way do it they in can. A re- yeah. Why are they backward? It's like, we'd send you on tour. It's like two grand. It's like, even back in the early 2000s, it's like, we budget $500 for a flight. We have to have a handler to be with you and a separate driver. Yeah. And we put you in the nice hotel because if put you're you. on tour, you're an author. We, you have to stay in the nice hotel. It's one of these prestige things. Yeah. If the other publishers find out we aren't putting you in the nice hotel. And so yeah. it's a whole ticket where you're hiring two separate people to come with the author mm-hmm. and things like that. And then they said, we've got maybe $1,000 in our budget. I'm like, great. I can do a city tour on $1,000. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I drive to Vegas. I take another author. Will you give them $1,000? They're like, yeah, okay. I'm like, all right, we can split the hotel costs. Me and Dave, we'll drive mm-hmm. to Vegas. We'll do a signing. We'll drive to San Diego. We'll do a signing. We'll drive to LA. And we did this whole tour on $2,000, $1,000 each. It came out under budget. And yeah. that's about what they would do for one author in one day. And I appreciate that you know, they want to treat their authors nice, but it means yeah. if you're on the bottom of the heap, you just get nothing. You just don't get anything because mm-hmm. they don't have that middle ground. They don't have the budget menu Yes, anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, And speaking of menu, that's part of it as well is they, yeah. they're budgeting like $150 per diem yeah. for you to eat yeah. yeah, because they expect you to go to a fancy place yeah. and order wine. And yep. you're like, no, I'm just going to grab some Wendy's on my way and my, eat in the car. Yeah. I ate on like 20 bucks a day when I was doing that. I mean, I don't recommend that, but it's what I did. And it's how I brought this thing in under budget. Mm-hmm. And it was so successful. It's part of what made my careers because I also asked them for a box of books. You guys have heard the story before, right? Where I'm like, mm-hmm. this is before our borders folded. There's 20 borders in San Diego or between San Diego and LA, I'm going to go to everyone and I'm going to give them a copy of Elantris to their science fiction person on staff and say, hey, I'll give you this free book if you'll read it. And I still get people coming to me at my signing and say, I was one of those people you gave that book to. I sold 300 copies of that book. Thanks for coming by my store. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Booksellers are my favorite people. Yes. Here's my ridiculous publishing story. Uh And this actually is not in the same vein at all. It has nothing to do with publishing being a weird industry. It's just, I was in Manhattan. I was visiting HarperCollins, doing Mm -hmm. some kind of something in their office when there was a fire in their building. Oh. I want to say it was like the 27th floor, but it might have been in the teens. Either okay. way, it was it was double digits. Mm-hmm. Teen, teens are between 17 and 27 is where they were. And, you know, the alarm went off and everyone's like, oh, don't worry about that. That happens all the time. And we just went about our business. And then the alarm went off again and they said, oh, no, actually, we have to take this one seriously. And so it was, you know, just down the stairs for 27 flights you know, kind of chatting and talking to each other and occasionally smelling smoke and freaking out. And when we got down to the bottom, there were fire engines everywhere. And and I said, what's going on? And they said, well, there's a fire. Like, <laughs> okay. Uh, and, you know, the building did not burn down and it was just some electrical fire somewhere. And it was it was not a disaster. And, and But still, but, the fact that the first time was like, oh, we don't have to pay attention to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we only leave if they if they really mean it. If, yeah. if the fire is burning that hot. I'm glad that at least one of my big Manhattan skyscraper experiences was a fire drill. So How's that been? <laughs>